Great. Um, uh, most of you perhaps have heard of St. Augustine, um, theologian, interesting character. If you know anything about his early life, uh, he was a bit of a tinker. Uh, and then got saved and kind of has written quite a few sort of theological books going many, 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 many hundreds of years ago and wrote one book called Confessions. And in this book, um, there's just a really interesting phrase that in some way sums up what I'm going to talk about tonight. He said this, God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless Till they find their rest in you. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that ridiculous experience of trying to meet someone and it kind of going horribly, um, horribly, horribly wrong. Perhaps you're a bit late and you're not quite sure whether they got there before you and so you're not quite sure whether to wait for them or to kind of go and look for them. Um, and I was reminded recently um, of a time when I was about 19 and um, I was invited to go and meet uh, a friend in London and we arranged to meet in um, a big department store uh, in, in London, and I kind of confidently went up as a 19 year old on the train from Kent where I lived. And, um, I was a bit late. The tra- there were trains problems going into Victoria, and I was a bit late. And I got, we'd arranged to meet, um, kind of downstairs, uh, kind of in, in the sort of lobby area near the electrical department. And then we we're going to go up onto the fourth floor to have coffee, um, and kind of have a catch up. And so I got there a bit late, and when I got there, she wasn't there. And at that point, you think, what do I do now? So you kind of wait for five minutes, and then you think, do I stay or do I go looking? And you kind of think, oh. And I thought, well, probably she's gone up to the fourth floor to the cafe. So it was one of these department stores that has about five different lifts, and you press the button, and you're watching them all, and you get in the lift, and you go up. And as you're going up, you kind of have that sinking feeling that she perhaps was a bit late, and she was coming down. So you get there, you get out, and you hope that she'll be there. You get there. She wasn't there. And at that point, you think, well, I'll wait here for a few minutes just in case she's going to come and join me. And then you're waiting up there for five minutes, you think... But what if she's downstairs waiting for me because she was late, or she was upstairs when I was downstairs? So you wait there for a few minutes, umming and erring, and then you come get back in the lift, and you're looking at the other lifts, thinking, are they coming up and going down? And no kidding, I went up and down in those lifts about seven times, always thinking that wherever I was, she was probably in the opposite place waiting for me. And you get caught in this trap of, do I stay? So you think, I'm going to stay this time. And after 10 minutes and no one appearing, you're thinking, she's probably staying where she is. I'll go up and see if she's there. And it turns out we had been missing each other for about 40 minutes. It's crazy how we can get caught in this trap of looking for someone. And the reason I mention that, a couple of weeks ago at St. Tom's, I was preaching from um, John's Gospel. John 1, verse 40 to 42. Um, You may remember the bit. John the Baptist is baptizing people. He's got lots of followers coming after him. Um, And he's preaching about the kingdom of God coming and he's preaching about the Messiah who's coming. The one after me, you know, is, is the Lamb of God. The one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to tie. And um, as Jesus appears, John's pointing to him. I mentioned it last week. And John's always pointing to him saying, look, it's about Jesus. It's not about me. Don't follow me. Follow him. And, of course, that's what begins to happen. Some of John's disciples start following Jesus. Um, in John 1, verse 40 to 42, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. So two of John's disciples um, head off, and one of them, um, uh, Andrew, goes and finds his brother. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and say to him, we found the Messiah. So he goes off and says, we found the Messiah. He tells his brother, and they come back. 
They were looking and longing and waiting for the Messiah. They were following John around, hoping that maybe John would point him to him. And eventually, they find of, they kind of see him and they find him and they're so relieved and they go and tell everyone about it. Um, Tom Wright, you might have heard Tom Wright, Bishop Tom Wright, written lots of theological books. Um, brilliant, brilliant guy. Very, particularly in the theology, he writes under the name Tom Wright. It's really accessible. He's written lots of books on the Gospels, and you can read John for everyone that he's written. He says this, What Andrew and Simon Peter thought they were doing was looking for the Messiah. What they didn't realize was that the Messiah was busy looking for them. That's kind of why I remember that kind of crazy scenario where I'm looking for this person, this person's searching for me. And sometimes for many people, our journey to find Christ can feel a bit like that. It's a bit like we're trying to look. We're doing this Alpha course at the moment. We're on week two of, of the eight weeks that we're running here. And there's many people, lots and lots of guests, over 20 guests who are coming in trying to make sense of God. For some of them, they have real faith. Some of them are just learning. Some of them have kind of already have a kind of faith and they're kind of wanting to go deeper. Some of the guys who are doing Alpha literally know nothing. They have no idea at all. And they're searching for God. And even in the small groups, in talking to them, they would say they're on a spiritual journey. They're perhaps looking for God and don't know they're looking for God, or they're searching for something, they're searching for meaning. But what Tom Wright's saying here is, we all, those of us who call ourselves Christians, we would say that we found Christ, we found God, we found him to be the Lord, and that's great. But the deeper truth is that while we even thought we were looking for God, the truth was that God was always looking for us. And God is looking for these guys on the Alpha course. That's why it's great for us to be praying for them. Tom Wright, I think, is right. We look for God and God looks for us. It's a two-way deal. The difference is, for me in my department store, where I kept missing this person, kind of this whole misadventure, and for Simon, Peter, and Andrew in their search for Messiah, God, in Christ, Jesus, knows where we are all the time. That's the really reassuring thing. It's not our own efforts, our own striving that's going to get us to God. God looks for a heart that says, I want to find you, perhaps. Maybe even in words and ways that we don't always understand. But God knows where we are, and God is looking for us. It's an invitation. That's what the gospel is all about, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. An invitation to come. Now, you've all come to church tonight. You could be sitting at home eating tea cakes and crumpets and having a nice warm night in front of the fire or whatever people do on a Sunday night. I can't remember for years and years because I've always had to do church. <laughs> but you could be somewhere else other than here. But for, what, for some reason or another, you've come. Maybe you come with joy in your heart, the thought of seeing these wonderful people. Uh, maybe you've come with a kind of sense of well, it would be really good to journey and to explore. Maybe you've come because there's some people here who are really your friends and family. Maybe you come because St. Matt's is a real place of community and family. It is those things. Maybe, maybe you're not sure why you've come. Maybe you've been dragged here by someone. Maybe you've been, pressure's been applied to you to come to church. People come for all sorts of reasons, and all of those are fine. But you're here. You have come to church. And the invitation is always there from God. Actually, whether you come to church or not, there's an invitation. It's just that church, a service like this, is often a great place for us to encounter God together in community and to help one another on our journey. The gospel is a continual invitation. And we need to remember that. That's why we run Alpha courses. That's why we try and share our faith. We want to invite others in the same way that Andrew did to his brother. We want to invite people to come. Not just a church, that's fine, but actually to come to Christ. 
But let's also remember that it's a constant invitation of Jesus to you and to me to keep coming back to him. And I want to speak a bit about that tonight. Let me read that phrase from Augustine again. God, it's a prayer really. God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. That whole passage from John that I mentioned a moment ago really fascinates me. When you, I mentioned it last week. When you look at popular culture, it's all about how many followers you have, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or how many likes you get, and that kind of defines what kind of day you feel you've had. You put a photo up of something and you only get one like, and you think, Ooh. or you get a thousand likes, and you think, yes, I'm validated as a human being now. Um, and culture can be a bit like that. It's about how popular we feel we are or our desire to have significance, to be noticed. I think God understands that. There's nothing wrong necessarily with that. But John the Baptist was a fascinating man. He was continually saying, it's not about me. He was always pointing at Jesus. It's about not coming to me, it's about going to him. That's what we want to be as a church. It's not about just come to church, come to us, come to me. It's about come to Jesus. He is the answer. And John's always pointing at Jesus. In that gospel, um, in, in John 1, the disciples come and they kind of they, they seek out Jesus. And he asks them this really big question. He says this, what are you looking for? John 1.38, what are you looking for? Jesus asked these two guys who have left John and gone to find Jesus. And his question, he looks at me and goes, well, what are you looking for? And I think that's a, a really deep question. What are you looking for? What are you searching for? In the Greek, it means what are you seeking? What are you trying to find? And I think that's a question that's really worth wrestling for all of us. What are we looking for right now? There'll be probably lots of things we could answer. And if they're in our heart and we're wrestling with them, then they're important to God. But often there's a deeper wrestling deep down spiritually, actually, that people are wrestling with deeper questions, deeper answers. That's what Alpha's all about, helping people to talk about some of those struggles, some of those, some of those questions, to ask maybe, well, what are you looking for? It's really fascinating to ask people why they come on an Alpha course. For some of them, it's just because they like Bear Grylls' face on the posters, Flirt and convert, that'll do it. It's fine, doesn't matter. You know, if Bear Grylls pulls people into church to help them on a spiritual journey, that's fine. But actually, people are searching for something deep down. Just maybe don't always necessarily know what they're looking for. God, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. So Jesus asked his disciples, what are you looking for? What are you searching for? And their reply is interesting. They say this, well, Jesus, where are you staying? Where are you staying? What they mean by that is, where, where, are, you, where are you hanging out, Jesus? Where, where, where can we go and be with you? How can we stay with you? How can we receive what you have to offer? How can we be with you all the time? Where can we be in the very presence of God? And Jesus' answer comes back to that invitation, that gospel invitation that it's all about. He just simply says, come. Come and see. Come and see. That's the primary message of John's gospel. That's the primary message of the gospel, I think. Jesus saying to each of us, come, come, come and see. See, so often people think Christianity is adherence to a doctrine or following a set of rules or doing a certain kind of spiritual discipline. And all those things can be helpful. But actually, Jesus never really said that. We heard in that gospel reading in Matthew, there's just an invitation from Jesus. Come, come follow me, come be with me. 
And those disciples leave everything they know and they do. It's an invitation to come. If you want to know the word made flesh, come and see Jesus. If you want to understand what the Christmas message is all about, then come and encounter Jesus. If you want to know what love, true love really is, then come and see Jesus. If you want to experience God's glory, to be filled with bread that never runs out, to quench your thirst with living water, to be born again, to live in this incredible love, if you want to see the light of the world, the hope of the nations, if you want to experience the way, the truth, and the life, to enter into life in all its fullness, if you want to know God, then come and see Jesus. And that's the gospel invitation that's open to all of us. Isaiah 55, come all who are thirsty. Come all who are thirsty. I said a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching, we're in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany means, do you remember? <laughs> no, Tim, we don't. What? Uh, you're looking quite scared. When the vicar says, what does Epiphany mean? You all feel like, I should know the answer to that, because he told me that two weeks ago. I'm such a bad Christian. <laughs> Very good, Peter. Straight to the top of that. See, that's why you're sexton here in the church. Yeah, it's kind of revelation, manifestation, kind of revelation of Jesus. Epiphany. Him being revealed. So we're in this season that the church calls Epiphany. It's okay. It's not something we talk about all the time. So it's, it's okay that that's escaped from your head what that means. How do you encounter something? How do you understand it? How do you make sense of it? Well, you look at it, don't you? You come and you see. And this is a season where God is wanting, I think, to reveal Jesus to all of us in a new way, certainly to the world around us. And for those first disciples that we heard called in that passage, they left nets, family, friends, security, certainty for the future. And there was an invitation that drew them into Jesus. They left those things. It's not that those things weren't important at all, but in the light of Jesus, suddenly this is electrifying call to come to him. And suddenly everything else kind of fell away. And the importance of that, Jesus was more engaging than anything. More engaging than any worldly draw of possessions or riches or relationships. Actually, Jesus, everything, the way, the truth, and the life. How could we consider anything but following after him? Even though they knew nothing. And so they left all they knew to follow Jesus. Sue's going to come and read this passage uh, from John. Jesus talks. Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, 
will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, 
the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I love that passage. It's one of my favorite in Scripture. I just love the humanity of Jesus, his grace, his authority, the way he kind of cuts through the stuff to get to the real challenges in this woman's life, the way he doesn't expose her but draws her, and how she's invited into some deep relationship and deep encounter with God that then inspires her to go and make an invitation to others because she's so inspired. Back in, um, I read this story recently, back in 1996, there was a young U.S. Marine called Joey, and he was standing on the platform of an aircraft carrier um, out in the Iranian Sea, and bizarrely, no one quite knows how, um, he fell overboard, and he wasn't noticed, his absence wasn't noticed for some 36 hours. When they eventually counted, well, Joey was missing, uh, they sent out a, a, a search mission um, to rescue, to try and find him, um, and not surprising, after 36 hours, when not being noticed, they couldn't find him. They searched for 24 hours and then gave up, um, assuming no one could survive in the sea at that uh, kind of those temperatures without a life jacket. He hadn't been wearing a life jacket, um, and so his parents were notified that he was missing, presumed dead. But the story doesn't end there, because four Pakistani fishermen found Joey about 72 hours after he'd fallen into the ocean. Uh, he was literally treading water in his sleep, clinging to a makeshift flotation device that he'd made from his trousers. If any of you have ever done life skills, when you can take your trousers off and tie a knot in the end, and, and you think, really, <laughs> really, would anyone ever do this? Well, here's an example where it saved his life after 72 hours. Um, he'd learned that in you know survival training. And so they dragged him out of the water. He's completely delirious, tongue dry, cracked, and he can't speak. Um, and I read this interview with him about two years later. An American reporter was interviewing him, and he was recounting this you know, seemingly unbelievable story, saying that it was God who kept him alive all those hours in the water. And he said, you know, what was the most excruciating thing after all? He said for those 72 hours, the one thought that he could not get out of his head pounding his brain every moment, every minute of every hour, got worse and worse and worse, was how thirsty he was, surrounded by water. And there's that line, isn't there, from the rhyme of the ancient mariner, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. And of course he knew if he drank drunk the seawater, as tempting as it would be, it would of course kill him. I don't know if anyone's ever been thirsty like that, delirious with thirst. The interesting thing is, I think actually... If we talk to people, most people are really, 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 really thirsty for more than they have. It may manifest in physical stuff, the desire for acquisition of stuff. But actually, if you scratch the surface, often there is a deep longing and a thirst for more. A deep thirst, a spiritual thirst, I think. I think the truth is, though, sometimes we kind of anesthetize ourselves to that thirst we become distracted or our pain perhaps anesthetizes us to it or we just get too busy to realize actually how spiritually thirsty we are we fill ourselves with stuff that kind of occupies us 
But sometimes, I often talk about in those moments when you're lying kind of in the room at night and all the kind of stuff pushes in on us, it's often those moments where we think, oh, there must be more than this. I wish, I wish I knew God more. I wish I knew God at all, perhaps. Is there an answer to life? There's a spiritual thirst, I think, in the heart of what it means to be a human being. In the, in the Bible, depending on which, which version you read, read the NRSV, for example, New Revised Standard Version, has the word thirst 77 times. It's a real biblical principle, being thirsty. It's a very powerful symbol. And as kind of physical dehydration draws us into a long, longing for um, a, a kind of glass of water, uh, I don't know if you've seen the films, Ice Cold in Alex? Some of you old enough to know that war film with the black and white bit where at the end they're crawling across the desert and they sit in the bar and there's a pint of Carlsberg, I think it is. And they're longing, all they're dreaming about getting this drink. A physical thirst makes us long for a, a drink. But there's a spiritual thirst that causes us, many people, to, to go on a journey to encounter something much deeper. Remember Augustine again. God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless Till they find their rest in you. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 42. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Or in Psalm 143. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And in this, this reading we just heard from Sue, John's um, chapter 4. Jesus kind of gives some insight into this human quest for dehydrated souls. A quest, to thir- um, a quest to kind of um, drench that thirst, in a sense. So here's this woman. She arrives at the well uh, to draw water and take it home with her. There's three things we need to know about this woman that put her at a distinct advantage in this whole scenario. First of all, she's a Samaritan. Second of all, she appears to be kind of in some, let's put it, relationships that have a spectacular failure rate and the person she's living with now isn't her husband. There's something going on in the whole kind of relationship realm with men that is not quite kosher. And the third thing is, that puts her uh, a distinct advantage in the whole situation, she's, she's a woman. Now, what do I mean about all that? Well, for the Pharisees of the day, if they had encountered this woman, she would have been in real trouble. See, they had a really simple ritual for being holy. The the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the powerful elite, the the men of God, they kept their holiness by keeping physical distance from sinners. They wouldn't even go near a sinner. Sin in their mind was contagious. And if you touch someone who was sinful, then actually you couldn't perform your your, your priestly duties. That's why in in the parable of the Good Samaritan, they kind of cross over the road. They don't want to touch this person who's half dead because if they're fully dead, then they become richly unclean. So they don't want to go near this person. Jesus breaks all those taboos. You notice the man with leprosy, what does he do? He doesn't just sort of say, be healed, do it from a distance. He reaches out and touches him. Pharisees thought you could catch sin by just hanging out with sinners. That's why they get so distressed with Jesus when, she, when he's anointed by that sinful woman, do you remember? So here's the woman at the well. We're told she's collecting water at noonday. You've probably heard this said before, but by implication, she's an outsider. Nobody in the Middle East goes to collect water at noon. It's the hottest point of the day. You're mad if you do that. Everyone collects it in the morning or the evening. Why is she doing it at that point? Probably because she's a social outcast. Probably because of her immoral history, 
Maybe the fact that she's been kind of going through men in the village, everyone would know who she is. No one would go to the well with her. She's been ostracized, and so she's seen as a woman of loose morals where you keep a distance from her. And so she's forced to go at noonday when no one else is there. So here she is alone encountering Jesus at the well. Her sins are apparent. But let's remember she's not sinned alone. Actually, in these days, it's husbands who divorce the women. The women didn't have any right to divorce. A woman couldn't divorce her husband. If this woman was married and divorced five times, then five men had divorced her. This woman was put to one side five times, thrown away like a used thing. And now she's living with someone who's not her husband. Maybe he's married to someone else. Maybe she's just the bit on the side. We don't know. But clearly there's a whole load of shame attached to this woman. Isolation. She's been passed around in the town. And Jesus somehow meets her in that place and doesn't expose her sin to shame her, but somehow draws her into this dialogue in order to expose the brokenness so that it can be healed. It's a beautiful, beautiful conversation. Not about shaming, not about exposing, not about crushing or belittling, but about drawing her into Jesus, which could have been a terrifying thing for her to admit. Remember, she was at the well alone. She was used to being on her own. She was used to surviving. She'd probably hardened her heart to what everyone else in the town said. And here's this man, Jesus, that's willing to encounter her and engage with her and talk to her. She was a woman of loose morals. That's how they would have talked about her. But the point is, she was a woman. And rabbis weren't allowed to talk to women. Men of God couldn't talk to women. Women were seen as the kind of underclass. Women would never have been able to even hold eye contact with a rabbi. Jesus, again, smashing all the rules of the day. Speaking to her as part of God's creation. Beloved daughter, child, loved by God. She was a woman, and she was a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritan were from two different worlds. Jews despised Samaritans. They had a misunderstanding of how to connect with God. They didn't understand that the Jewish culture was a way to connect with God, and so they rejected much of the Jewish teaching, yet believed in the God, the same God that the Jews believed in. So Jews despised Samaritans, which is why she said, but you're a Jew. Why are you even talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus cuts through all of that and says to her, Will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? Jesus asks her, will you give me a drink? This woman, this poor woman is kind of completely flummoxed by this and can't quite believe what she's hearing. She can't believe that a man, a rabbi, and a Jew is speaking to her. She's astounded and and asks, well, how, how can you ask me for a drink? And he says these beautiful words. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's the God of grace. Despite her brokenness, despite her social position, despite all the things against her, Jesus is like saying, you know what? The God of grace wants to give you far more than you could ask or imagine. He wants to give you so much. Humanity is thirsting. Every man, woman, child has thirsts and longings, maybe for security, maybe for position, maybe for a sense of love and for for um, embrace, maybe for a sense of worth and value. We all have longings for stuff. 
And in this moment, the Samaritan woman is beginning to sense that Jesus has something unique to offer to her. And she's drawn in by it. Experts say we should drink about eight glasses of water a day. I don't know. Does anyone here do that? Those of you that are very fit and healthy, well done you. Ellie does. I know Ellie does, doesn't she? Yeah, I, I don't. I should do. I drink at least eight cups of coffee a day, but I don't think that's quite the same. And we kind of drink and drink and drink water because we need to. And the reason we keep to need drinking is because it, it, we need to keep drinking it. It's because it, we need to keep drinking it. But what Jesus is saying, I can offer you something that, that kind of satisfies truly that lasts. In John 7, he told the people in Jerusalem, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Again, it's an invitation. Come to me. Come to me and I will give you streams of living water. That's the invitation to come to Jesus. That's why Alpha this week was, who is Jesus? And this week at Alpha on Wednesday, please be praying for all of us as we go through that. It's why did Jesus die? Jesus is central to who we are and what we're about. Because the invitation is to encounter him. And when we encounter him, something of our inner life is exposed, not in a shameful way, but in a healing way and in a breakthrough way. It's really interesting. When Jesus talks to this woman, you get a hint of her pain. Because Jesus offers her this water and she says, I I don't want to have to come here, here. It's almost like she's saying, this time, this place, me on my own. I'm done with this life. And Jesus, interestingly, in the the proper Greek translation, says, I want you to go home and get your husband and bring the man who's not your husband and bring him here. Come and encounter me in this place of exposure. It's not of of exposing you to shame, but it's a place of exposing your heart so that I can heal you and bring transformation. Thirst is a good thing. It reminds us of our true need. The question is then how we respond to that thirst. Here's those words of Jesus again as I draw into a close. Let everyone who is thirsty come to me. And let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, for out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus offers living water. And for this woman, there's this cavernous thirst, this deep thirst for more, for significance, for value, for freedom probably from her guilt and shame, for a sense in her own soul that there's something that she's longing for. Clearly, she, she knows about the Christ, the Messiah. She's been looking for him, and she's desperate for him. And for her, clearly, she's been trying to fill that void by moving from one man to the next. And in a sense, the process for her probably makes her more and more hardened and blind to the real need. We all do that. When we perpetually get into patterns of behavior rather than turning to Jesus, we often become hardened in our lives and we become calloused, maybe bitter, maybe withdrawn. Maybe we draw back from Jesus because instead of really going to Jesus, we we fill our lives with other stuff. Maybe it's busyness, maybe it's work, maybe it's a quest for the perfect relationship. Maybe it's drugs or drink or kind of internet porn, whatever it may be. We can replace that deep thirst that only really satisfies with Jesus with a more temporary fix that kind of covers over, but we know deep down it doesn't. But the more we keep turning to that, the harder we can become. 
But the remarkable truth is that when we turn back to Jesus, what we don't encounter is a Jesus who says, well, I told you to stop living this way years ago. We encounter grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's what the gospel is. It's a continual invitation. Not just once to become a Christian, but I think it's a continual invitation every day to come and encounter him afresh. Because the truth is we all have areas in our hearts and lives that need exposing to God's touch in a fresh way. I know I do. I know there's things in my heart and I, I kind of almost you have a revelation moment. You think, God, I, I'm ashamed that that's there in me. Sometimes it's only in the light of Jesus when we've gone to encounter him that we see truth and those things are exposed. And then Jesus speaks into them and wants to bring healing and breakthrough. And sometimes it's an uncomfortable moment, if we're honest. That moment where <laughs> Jesus says to the woman, oh, go and tell your husband to come here. And she says, oh, I haven't got a husband. And he comes straight back. No, that's right, you haven't. The person you're, you know, you've been married five times and the person you're living with at the moment isn't your husband. I think that would have been a bit of a moment for her. I don't know how else to say that. It would have clearly been a bit of a, oh my gosh, <laughs> he's been reading my emails. He knows everything about me. That's what she says to the people in the village. Come and meet this man who, told, who knows everything about me. In that moment, it's like a whole life was opened like a book. And that can be a bit scary. God is really gracious. He doesn't do that in public. (laughs) But sometimes he does it in our own hearts. He exposes the truth that he knows all about your life. It's quite, we kind of know that. If you're a Christian here, you probably know that. But I mean, God knows all about your life. Every little thought, every dark moment, every dream, every longing, every hurt, every pain, Every hope, every aspiration, every temptation, he knows our hearts. But he loves us. He loves you. And he wants to draw you into friendship and transformation. Because he intends to break through and bring transformation in your life. To give you more light, more life, more love, more hope, more freedom than you've known before. Right in the core of your being like this woman, to bring transformation. And that is a process. God takes us from one stage of glory to the next. Sometimes there's big jumps and sometimes it's moments of transformation, but he is committed to bringing transformation in your heart and your life. So you may well have thought you're on a journey pursuing God, and that's good. Some of you may be just starting that journey and you sense God there somewhere and you're taking tentative steps towards him. That's brilliant. We want to cheer you on in that. We, we don't want to kind of stand behind you pushing you. <laughs> we might encourage you and open a few doors and try and help you. That's what Alpha's about. But no one should be beating anyone into the kingdom with a Bible or a why Jesus, you know. Because actually, God draws. God woos. He draws us with his cords of loving kindness. He woos us with his love and his grace. There are moments of exposure where God says, I need to transform this in your heart. You need to be forgiven. You need to say sorry and repent. But God's continual draw is one of love and mercy because he's a father who draws his children. I love my kids. Sometimes they are toads. Properly toads. And my patience is tested and, and because I'm a human father with many, many frailtings. Frailtings, that's a good word. Frailties. Sometimes I don't deal with them as I should. 
when they're really, really, really monkeys like they are sometimes, there are moments where I look at them and they've been properly, properly bad. (laughs) And I look at them and I love them because I know they're made for better than that. And I know what's in them is way better than that. And they let themselves down at times and they they hurt each other and they, they hurt me, perhaps. They hurt God. But I look into their eyes and they're my kids. They're from my flesh, bone of my bone. And I want better for them. And I want to pour myself into them more. I want to try and encourage them and I want to help set them free from the things that hold them back. I want to transform the way they think about themselves and the way they think about others. And that's a tiny glimpse of how great God is as a father who looks at us despite our mess. God is very gracious. He loves us. I remember once when Ellie had eaten lots and lots and lots of food (laughs) when she was about four and she was really sick in the car. Really sick, like only children can be. Sorry if you've got a sensitive stomach. And it was everywhere, like everywhere. And she got out of the car, traumatized by this, really crying. Now, my wife is a nurse. She's very good with these sorts of things, bodily fluids. I'm not great with vomit, if I'm honest. (laughs) But I looked at her traumatized. And everything in me wanted to go and get a hose pipe and just jet wash her down a bit. Before I'd let her near me. But actually what she needed in that moment was just a picking up and a hug. And so I picked her up and I got it all over me and in my hair. And it was horrible. And it was all over me. It's a tiny insight of how God is with us. God hates the sin that surrounds us. But he loves you. He hates the brokenness in our lives. Jesus despised the poverty of this woman's soul but actually he reached out to her with love and compassion because he wanted to transform her to help her to become the woman that she was destined to be a child of God called as a witness to her town to share the glory of Jesus and for you and for me God is wanting to bring transformation to us and embrace us with his love he wants to deal radically with the sin that holds us back but that's what the cross is all about power to bring transformation And you need to know this. You might be looking for God, but God is pursuing you, chasing you. I read a book many years ago called The God Chasers. It's a good book. But God is chasing you a lot harder than you're chasing him. God is wanting to woo you and draw you. And he doesn't just want your attendance at church or your occasional prayers or you reading more of the Bible. All those things are brill. He'd love that. But what he really wants is your heart, because then he gets everything. He's after your heart, your priorities, your relationships, your wallet, your pain, your shame, your guilt, your talents, your joys. He wants you because he loves you. And he wants to draw you to himself. Let the one who is thirsty come, says Revelation 22. Let the one who desires Take the water of life. I'd like to pray for us. And we're going to share communion. I'm going to get the band up in a minute. But I want to pray for us first and just be still for a minute. The gospel is an invitation to come. Not just once for salvation. 
Maybe, maybe there are people here tonight, you're not sure that you are a Christian. Well, it's a permanent invitation. It's a constant call to come. You can come and encounter Jesus tonight. Maybe for the first time, like that woman at the well. A surprise encounter. But I think we need to understand as his people that it's a daily call to come. And I need to come and encounter him. His grace, his mercy, his words of discipline, his words of challenge. I need to come again. And we're going to be able to do that in a moment with communion. We're going to share bread and wine very simply together. We're going to have a couple of posts, one at the front and one at the back, and we can come and take the bread and wine. If you know and love Jesus, then you can come and receive this body, bread, his body, symbol of the brokenness on the cross as his body broken. We can receive the wine, symbol of his blood, in remembrance of his blood shed for us. And sometimes we do outward things. We sing the songs, we, we pray the prayers, we use words, we maybe go to church. And we can do it with our bodies, but almost disengaging our heads. I just want to pray for us as we share communion t- tonight, that we would truly know that we are coming to feed from Christ, to receive from him, to actually say as we go forward in our own hearts to receive the bread and the wine, Lord, I'm coming to encounter you knowing that you are already looking for me, searching me out. Let's make that an active decision in our hearts. Let's just pray.